Hello and welcome to Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialist of America. We are an intersectional activist organization working to build a society and economy run by the working class, a society that democratically meets the needs of the many rather than creating profits for the few. Renegade Paradise is a news, commentary, and educational platform based on socialist analysis from activists on the ground here in the Lowcountry. By sharing a socialist perspective and by lifting up the voices of our allies and comrades, we hope to create a space for folks in this part of the country looking to deepen their understanding of leftist politics, but who may not know exactly where to start. Members of the Charleston Democratic Socialists of America come from a broad, diverse set of backgrounds and tendencies within the spectrum of the left. What unites us, however, is one common goal, to build a different world, a better world. I'm Alfred Peeler. And I'm CJ Bones. And for today's episode, we're going to continue our discussion on the Department of Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, that's better known as ICE. In our previous episode on this topic, we interviewed Fernando Soto of the online Spanish language news portal Recursos Estatales to focus on the human cost of the American immigration system. We also discussed some efforts at organizing for immigrant justice here in the Lowcountry. Today's episode, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into ICE uh, at the organizational level. In part one, we will demonstrate that ICE is not the stalwart defender of the homeland that they claim to be, and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt they're merely an instrument of American imperialism and brutality. We here at Charleston DSA want to emphasize that it's not only ICE that must be toppled. In fact, if we in the working class are seeking the abolition of capitalism and a permanent transition to a socialist society, all national borders must ultimately be eliminated. Amen. To motivate this larger position, it's crucial for us as the global proletariat to understand the concept of border imperialism and how it's designed to oppress and divide us rather than protect us. And we're going to get into that in part two of today's episode. We hope this discussion will build a strong case against ICE and help our listeners avoid the pitfalls of state propaganda when discussing immigration with friends, family, and hopefully, and this is important, other organizers. I'm CJ Bones. I'm Alfred Peeler. And this is Renegade Paradise. Welcome back to Renegade Paradise. I'm Alfred Peeler. And I'm CJ Bones. All right, so let's begin this segment by asking what exactly is ICE? ICE is a federal law enforcement agency officially created in 2003 as part of this new post-9-11 gigantic expansion of the police, prison, and surveillance state that we call the Department of Homeland Security. So when you really break it down, ICE has only existed for about 16 years. It can't even drink yet. Democrats and Republicans are both to blame when it comes to creating this organization in the first place. If we remember back, the original bill that established DHS, uh, that's House Bill H.R. 5005, passed 295 to 132 in the House and 90 to 9 in the Senate. These are incredible majorities from both parties. Yeah, I really feel like we cannot emphasize that enough. This had bipartisan support by and large. It's a bipartisan issue. So let's fast forward to the current administration. Uh, today, ICE has grown into a massive bureaucracy with an estimated 20,000 employees in approximately 400 offices within the United States 
and 46 other countries. And as far as raw numbers of deportations go, the Obama administration still holds the current single-year record with 419,384 people separated from their communities. Let's compare that with Trump's 2018 total of roughly 256,000 deportations. And we can begin to understand why in our previous episode on this topic, our friend uh, Fernando described the former president pretty accurately with the nickname uh, Deporter-in-Chief. So it wasn't until the second term of the Obama administration that they began to soften their stance somewhat. Uh, During that term, we saw lower deportation numbers and policies such as DACA being put into place. But by that point, the damage had already been done. So Democrats had precious little time in, in these years to pass even the most basic immigration reforms uh, during Obama's first term when they controlled both houses. Instead, they squandered it by pandering to nationalists who were not going to budge anyway. Another opportunity wasted. Maybe let's, let's emphasize this again just so our listeners are, are clear on this. There is a, there's a line of thought out there that Obama's position on ICE and what he was telling ICE to do as far as who they were to arrest was good, and Trump is bad. Not true. (laughs) This is demonstrably false, and we'll get into it in a little bit. Yes. Um, So the bottom line here is that ICE is the brutal vanguard of a deeply unjust immigration system which investigates, arrests, detains, deports, tortures, and occasionally murders people who are deemed in violation of its pointlessly punitive laws. Looking at the size of these... um, government institutions is kind of frightening too. So together, the budgets of ICE and its sister organization, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we'll call it CBP from now on, have grown over the years to surpass the budgets of every other federal law enforcement agency combined. This despite the fact that undocumented immigration has been declining. Even more disturbing, ICE has zero congressional oversight and reports directly to the executive branch of the federal government. It is in theory as well as in practice, an American Gestapo. ICE claims on its website that, quote, the removal of aliens who pose a danger to national security or a risk to public safety shall be ICE's highest immigration enforcement priority, end quote. So the question is, what exactly is wrong with this? Well, the answer is, is that it is a lie. Now, there are two main ways that ICE polices. The first way is through what are called custodial arrests, And we apologize for the next little bit. This is going to get a little bit uh, terminology laid in with a lot of statistics, but it's important to sort of lay this out in order to... Break out your notebooks. Yeah, to make make the point. You might want to draw a flowchart. So um, as I was saying, like the the first way, um, there are two main ways that ICE polices. The first way is what are called custodial arrest. So during this process, ICE issues documents known as detainers, an ominous sounding order authorizing the continued detention of a person that is already in custody. When this detainer is issued, ICE takes over custody of somebody from another law enforcement agency, typically from jails and prisons. These orders have always made up the bulk of ICE arrest. So the majority of people that ICE is picking up are people they're picking up from other law enforcement agencies. ICE also engages in what are known as community or quote-unquote at-large arrests. These are typically more high-profile because they involve ICE agents showing up in large groups and violently kidnapping the person or persons they're targeting from their home, their job, place of worship, their court dates, etc. They literally show up at someone's doorstep and make them disappear. 
This should be terrifying to everybody. Yeah. So the the track program, that's T-R-A-C program over at Syracuse University, compiles information about the activities of federal agencies and has used FOIA Freedom of Information um, requests and other means to try to pin down the specifics of ICE's activities. What their research has shown definitively, contrary to ICE's claim on their own website, is that the folks that ICE is arresting are definitely not national security risk. In fact, most of the folks being arrested, detained, imprisoned, and brutalized aren't even threats to public safety at all. So, for instance, if we look at last year, at the last year of Obama's first term and the beginning of his second, we find that half of all detainers were issued for individuals with zero criminal convictions on their record. Not even traffic violations. Zero convictions. Zero convictions. Jesus. Another 18% of those detainers were issued for people whose worst conviction was for either a DUI, a traffic offense, or marijuana possession. Now, less than 14% of the detainers that were issued for people during this time period actually met ICE's claim priorities on their website. Now, in 2017, when Trump comes into office, we did see a 41% jump in ICE arrest, which were still far below where they were under their peak um, during the Obama administration. 2017 and 2018 saw ICE arrest hover around half of what they were during the worst parts of Obama's tenure. But attached to that 41% increase in arrest was a 171% overall increase in the amount of people with no criminal backgrounds being arrested. In 2016, just over 15,000 undocumented immigrants were arrested with no criminal convictions. In 2017, that number jumped to almost 38,000, more than, a, more than you know, a doubling. And in 2018, the number increased to 53,500. If we compare those numbers to the total amount of people arrested as of 2018... Oh, and... Uh... Just to be clear, we're talking about custodial arrest, right? Yeah, we're still talking about custodial arrest okay, at this cool, point. Thanks. So <clears throat> in 2018, the total amount of people arrested by ICE was 158,581. So let's do just a little bit of math. This means that one out of every three persons ICE arrested in 2018 had no criminal convictions. Again, not even traffic violations. And these stats already even taken from the track program, these stats come directly from ICE's own yearly report, which we will include a link to in the description. So in addition, ICE's report lists the criminal convictions of the people they arrested in 2018. So we can ask exactly what sort of quote-unquote criminals is ICE arresting. Of all the criminal convictions listed, 67% were for the following. General immigration violations. DUIs, traffic violations, obstructing government bodies, whatever that means, <laughs> flight backslash escape, and something that is just called, quote-unquote, liquor. <laughs> so that means that like over two-thirds of the folks with so-called criminal convictions could have been booked from anything ranging from rolling through a stop sign to public intoxication. A terror to the public. <laughs> I mean... If you've been to downtown Charleston after midnight, you know that can be kind of annoying to deal with. 
but hardly a matter of public safety or national security. Hardly a reason to allow a fascist organization like ICE to commit acts of state-sponsored terror in our immigrant communities. So these stats are even worse for community arrests. Remember, these are the ones where they, ICE is not picking up folks who are already in custody, but are driving in and arresting people from their homes, their workplaces, and so on. Right. So the last year of Obama's presidency saw 30,348 community arrests. Of those, 5,500, or 18%, had zero criminal convictions on their record. Again, these are ICE's own statistics. In 2017, under Trump's first year in the White House, community arrest increased by a third to just over 40,000, with 13,600 persons arrested with no criminal backgrounds. Again, that's one out of every three. 2018 was even worse, with 40,500 community arrests, with 17,400, or 43% of arrestees having no criminal record. Again, not even a fucking traffic violation. ICE doesn't include these convictions of community arrestees with records, but if they follow the pattern, there's a large chance they're mostly bullshit victimless offenses used to excuse, excuse me, used as an excuse to arrest members of our communities. So we're going to take a break from these stats on criminality for now, but the point is clear. The idea that ICE's immigration operations are focused on protecting national security and ensuring public safety, as they state on their website, is simply not true. It's fucking bullshit, man. It's bullshit. Under the Trump administration, and indeed as echoed through the actions of ICE personnel themselves, no undocumented person in America is safe. To be clear, we um, at Charleston DSA and DSA in general wouldn't become pro-ICE overnight if it would just stick to its uh, you know, ridiculous narrative of going after the bad guys. We don't think that ICE or borders, for that matter, should exist, period. Right. And we'll address that later on. But the point is clear. ICE is not who they say they are. Right. Um, so... That obviously leads us to if ICE isn't protecting us to uh, from threats to national security or public safety, because I think we pretty much laid it out. That that's not what is actually going on. Uh, what is it doing? Uh, the general answer is upholding a system of border imperialism. But we'll come back to that point later. Uh, for now, it's worth looking at what ICE operations look like. Uh, for undocumented parents with children who are citizens, any day can be one where ICE picks you up after dropping off your children at school, never to see them again. Reports out of New York demonstrate how ICE haunts courtrooms, snatching undocumented persons, appearing for court, and forcing them into unmarked vehicles as their families look on in horror because ICE refuses to even identify themselves during the arrest. Yeah, they don't even tell them who they are. Yeah, Just that's... Snatch them up. Yeah, that's... That's definitely something a legitimate government organization does, right? Um, people are literally assuming that they're watching family members being kidnapped, and in many ways they are. Uh, ICE's policing activities, which should by now uh, be recognized as terrorism, fit into a larger violent culture of degrading immigrants, asylum seekers, and refugees as criminals and threat to our, quote, culture, unquote. Where have we heard that before? And economic stability. We will revisit these issues a moment, um, in a moment a little more systematically in the final segment, but for now, a few points on these myths should be kept in mind. Uh, first, and this is to be repeated, 
all evidence shows that undocumented immigrants commit crimes, including the violent crimes the current administration charges them with, at rates lower than native-born citizens. So your white neighbor who has never left the county, statistically, has a higher probability of committing a crime than an undocumented immigrant just about anywhere. So think about it. Uh, the fact that most folks caught up by ICE's aggressive tactics have done nothing wrong is bad enough, but combined with the fact that we've subjected people to an incredibly violent, dangerous, and dehumanizing set of conditions while in ICE custody is even worse. Throughout the past several months, many activists, social justice, and immigration organizations, and even members of Congress, such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, have been vocal about terrible conditions at immigrant detainment facilities around the country. Uh, the Congresswoman has correctly labeled the facilities concentration camps through her social media platforms, and other Congress people have joined her. Uh, according to her Instagram live stream on June 7th, Ocasio-Cortez stated that, quote, the U.S. is running concentration camps on our southern border, and that's exactly what they are. They are concentration camps. That's exactly what they are. Unquote. And, I mean, this has not been the first time that these camps along the southern border have been in the news. So other reports from 2018 have included um, the following topics and headlines. The New Yorker published images of the prison for children in Tornillo, Texas, in June 2018. ProPublica included heartbreaking recordings of children screaming and crying in an expose of secret detention facilities during the same time period. In September 2018, the New York Times broke the news that the Trump administration was secretly deporting additional immigrant children to the Tornillo camp. Fast forward to 2019, and the situation is becoming worse. Freelance journalist Jonathan Katz wrote about conditions that could be considered torture under the Geneva Convention. Prisoners have been subjected to periods of sleep deprivation, freezing cold, confinement in cages, and lack of medicine, food, and other critical supplies as well. Images of said prisoners crowded behind what could essentially be described as dog kennels while the so-called vice president toured the facility looking every bit the fascist he is minus the military garb have made the rounds on news and social media websites as they should. The Intercept has done incredible work documenting the systemic crisis of physical abuse, sexual assault, and rape perpetrated against ICE detainees and the complete lack of accountability for this. According to this work, the Office of Inspector General at the Department of Homeland Security received around 33,000 such complaints between 2010 and 2016, while actually investigating only 2% of these. <sighs> only 2%? Yeah. Jesus. The OIG confirmed that between 2010 and 2017, there were 1,224 complaints of sexual abuse by folks within ICE custody that resulted in only 43 investigations. Literally, once you're arrested by ICE for nothing, and before you're deported to a place where you probably don't even have a home, you are subject to an array of physical and sexual state abuses whose, perp whose perpetrators are essentially inculpable. As bad as things look, though, it does get worse. According to a report by Human Rights Watch dated on it's uh, July 26, 2019, at least 26 immigrants have died in Donald Trump's concentration camps. That's 26 human beings murdered unceremoniously by a state forged in the fires of white supremacy. That's 26 human beings murdered by the same predatory capitalist state that massacred entire Native American tribes as it cut a bloody swath through the continent. 
26 human beings murdered by the same predatory capitalist state that kept millions of Africans and their descendants in bondage for generations and continues to do so today with the largest prison population on earth. 26 human beings murdered by the same predatory capitalist state that forcibly relocated over 100,000 Japanese Americans during World War II and allowed nearly 2,000 of them to die while locked away. 26 human beings murdered by the same predatory capitalist state that fought demonic, costly, and pointless wars in Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq, resulting in the deaths of millions and the destabilization and displacement of millions more. You see the pattern? It's obvious the United States of America is no stranger to killing and imprisoning innocent people. We've done it plenty of times in generations past, and now, with ICE cracking down on immigrant communities, we're seeing the latest incarnation of the white nationalist tendencies of the American predatory capitalist state. It's time to pay attention to the canary in the coal mine and destroy this apparatus of state terror before human rights are violated and more lives are lost. I'm CJ Bones. I'm Alfred Peeler. And this is Renegade Paradise. Welcome back to Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. Thank you for listening. In this segment, we want to take a broader look at borders and immigration in general. It's one thing to dismantle a violent white supremacist terror group like ICE, but let's remember that ICE is merely a symptom of a larger problem, and that problem is border imperialism. We want to discuss this topic at length for the last segment of today's episode. If you're taking notes, you want to put two underlines of below that and write it in red ink, because this is where uh, we start to connect the dots. Get out your red pens. Right. In mainstream political spaces, um, you're going to see that the discourse surrounding immigration in general and migrants seeking asylum at our southern border in particular have shifted far to the right. Immigrants are automatically assumed to be some sort of threat. You've heard the excuses, they won't assimilate, they have connections with drugs and crime, they're inherently violent, etc. Hell, Donald Trump even kicked off his presidential campaign by broadly labeling undocumented immigrants as rapists, and his base ate it up. God, that shit was so embarrassing. <laughs> now, it's clear that the U.S. has a serious problem with treating folks like human beings when they've done something as inconsequential as crossing an imaginary line without having their papers in order. So let's say for uh, the sake of argument that a humane immigration policy is somehow inherently dangerous. Uh, the talking point that follows is that the level of risk that comes from such a policy requires strong borders to mitigate said risk. Borders, according to police state-loving cowards on the right and their liberal enablers, are our means to deal with these threats. Discussions of borders center around abstract notions like national sovereignty and outright state propaganda concerning public safety and national security. Charleston DSA completely rejects this nationalist paranoia. Instead, we'll offer a different framework for viewing borders and how they actually function geopolitically. We want to ask who benefits from borders and how are they linked with the flow and accumulation of capital? Uh, so to do this, we're going to pull a lot from the work of Harsha Walia 
an organizer for immigrant and indigenous liberation, and by her book, uh, which is called Undoing Border Imperialism. Uh, we highly recommend this book and any of Wally's stuff if you can find it online. She's incredible. Yeah, in her book, R- R- Leah reframes the, the popular discourse we mentioned above surrounding immigration um, within a multifaceted, complex analysis of capitalism, labor exploitation, settler colonialism, state building, and racialized empire. So in short, she correctly observes borders are historically recent human constructs as opposed to natural formations, and they exist only to control the travel of people, many of whom are indigenous, black, or mixed ancestry through communities that have cross-border ties much older than the United States of America. Through this framework of border imperialism, Walia notes that the U.S. continues to economically exploit labor around the world, fund right-wing death squads, open up globalized markets to foreign investment while controlling worker movement and cling to a hopelessly punitive and costly war on drugs, among other things. As these aggressive predatory capitalist policies continue, more and more folks from other countries have no choice but to flee the violence and poverty we have exported to their front doors. Borders, as we know them today, represent practices used to legally coerce displaced migrants into precarious labor and criminalized existence. Meanwhile, and this is important to remember, capital is free to move around the globe. That's Pe- right. People are not. Borders are for us. They're not for capital. So border imperialism has four main components. The displacement of indigenous populations, the criminalization of migrants, the racialization of migrants, and the, crea- and the creation of disempowered labor. Bones and I are going to go back and forth um, to briefly touch on each of these comments and when we're done with that, we'll summarize the sort of picture of borders and immigration that this framework affords us. Uh, shall I start us off? Yeah, go for it. Cool. All right. So first, we're going to talk about uh, displacement of indigenous populations. Um, before we begin, we need to make a distinction between what is anti, uh, between what in anti-imperialist and decolonial literature is called the metropoles and the per- uh, periphery. The metropoles are developed industrial and post-industrial capitalist hubs. So that would be areas like the United States, Europe, Australia, China, India, etc. Uh, the periphery refers to what we might call third, uh, quote, third world, unquote, or colonized nations whose standing in the context of geopolitics relegates them to do the bidding of the metropoles, essentially. Uh, the distinction between metropole and periphery can occur within a state as well, where large cities contrast with small rural areas. Um, so the first part of border imperialism is, uh, uh, according to Walia's work, the displacement of indigenous communities in the periphery by the actions of the metropoles. And this can occur in a number of ways. Uh, one way is straight up colonial uh, settler colonialism. Uh, You don't have to do a lot of homework to understand how many have been murdered or forcibly relocated by the state. Since well before the Declaration of Independence was written, uh, the United States has waged constant war against indigenous peoples, resulting in a massive theft of land, wealth, and power from these tribes and towards the state. It's difficult to estimate the number of Native Americans who were living in what is today the United States of America before the arrival of Europeans. Estimates range from a low of 2.1 million to a high of 18 million. Tribal territories once spanned the continent, from the Cree and Blackfoot tribes to the north, 
down to the Apache and Navajo tribes of the Southwest deserts, from the Chinook of the Rocky Pacific Northwest to the Cherokee of the Appalachian Mountains. Native American tribes were all over the continent. Um, Our government engaged in a systematic campaign of genocide for centuries, reducing the native population down to approximately 250,000 people uh, in the 1890s. Uh, Most of the remaining tribes were often driven off of their land into so-called reservations in places like Oklahoma, which was just simply known as Indian Territory until 1907, uh, when it became an official U.S. state. The West, establishing the state of Israel and Palestine in 1948, allowing for the ethnic cleansing of nearly three-quarters of a million Palestinians, whose descendants make up the largest refugee community in the world, also comes to mind. Displacement is also a product of war. The United States has certainly not let up since then. The U.S.'s invasion of Vietnam uh, created a massive exodus of refugees, with a total of 350,000 fleeing to other areas of Southeast Asia and Hong Kong between 1978 and 1979. Our invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan in the early aughts created over 4.5 million people displaced, as both countries became war-torn and destabilized. We should point out that we didn't exactly welcome any of these refugees. Exactly. To America. Exactly. Um, Structural readjustment politicking is another method. So when states in the periphery fall into need, uh, the metropoles can use international financial entities like the World Bank or the IMF to loan out desperately needed cash on condition uh, that the the borrower state turn over public property to the private sector, and otherwise open itself up to foreign investment. Uh, These conditions can undermine normal life and privatize access to resources to an extent where local communities have to either move to urban areas or leave the state altogether. Similar results following from neoliberal international trade deals negotiated between bankers, Wall Street insiders, and politicians. The results of NAFTA on Mexican farmers has been well documented as well as its relation to an influx of Mexican peoples across the southern border. Legitimizing coups for when they are for Legitimizing coups when they are good for US business also leads to displacement. The current influx of Honduran asylum seekers at our border is largely the product of the 2009 right-wing coup that ousted democratically elected President Zelaya and ushered in a Lobo administration that terrorized its population while ensuring global investors that Honduras was, quote, open for business, unquote. This coup was legitimized first by the Obama administration and then by Trump, so big surprise there. Uh, It's clear that the United States and global capital in general has never respected the borders of other people. It is disingenuous at best to uh, to say that It is disingenuous at best for the state to suddenly become so concerned about the sanctity of its borders when it has a long, sad history of forcibly removing other folks from their ancestral lands uh, when there are economic or political advantages to be gained. That quote from Lobo just puts it perfectly, like makes Willia's point for her. (laughs) It's so, like, comically evil, right? (laughs) You, You, like, can't make it up. Yeah. Anyway, so we'll, so we'll turn now to the, the second um, point of border imperialism, which is the criminalization of migrants. 
<clears throat> so since well before 9-11, the way that the state deals with immigrants has um, taken a right-wing turn into outright fear-based scapegoating. Despite this, two facts remain. Immigrants, documented and undocumented, are less likely to engage in criminal activity than people who were born here. Not only that, but areas with higher rates of immigration are also associated with lower rates of violent crime and property crime. Again, this is true for both documented and undocumented, regardless of their country of origin or level of education. So that hard right turn I just mentioned means most immigrants are definitely not criminals, quote-unquote, but they still must deal with that reputation whether or not they've actually done anything wrong. As a result, thanks to the current siege mentality of the United States, deportation has become a punishment for very minor offenses, as noted in the entire previous section we just did on ISIS activities. And policies aimed at trying to end undocumented immigration have been made more punitive rather than more rational and practical, or aimed at treating immigrants as if they're, you know, like our human neighbors. Or, right. You know, go figure. Okay, so <clears throat> in short, immigrants themselves are being criminalized just for doing what any natural-born citizen would do in similar situations, relocating in an attempt to better themselves and their families and loved ones. To put that into some hard numbers, according to the American Immigration Council, between 1990 and 2013, the foreign-born share of the U.S. population went up from 7.9% to 13.1%, and the number of undocumented immigrants more than tripled, from 3.5 million to 11.2 million. During the same period, FBI data indicates that violent crime still managed to decline 48%, and property crime rate, the property crime rate fell 41%. This decline in crime rates in the face of high levels of new immigration has been a steady national trend since the 90s. Interestingly enough, hate crimes, on the other hand, have shot up dramatically. According to data released by the FBI, hate crimes in the United States rose 17% in 2017. Something else happened in 2017, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they, they rose 17% in 2017 compared to the previous year, uh, the third straight annual increase. There were 7,175 hate crime incidents in 2017. And of the crimes motivated by hatred over race or ethnicity, nearly half involved African Americans and 11% were anti-Hispanic. These obviously would only include incidents that were actually reported. It's no secret that many marginalized communities are often reluctant to report hate crimes due to the violent backlash by police, white communities, or both. You don't want to call the police if the police are going to call ICE on you, and you're never going to see your family again. Yeah. So before we move on to the next session, let's address a couple of this, like, the, this false talking point that we hear a lot from the right, which is usually something along the lines of, quote, we don't hate immigrants, we just think they should wait their turn or, or go through this system. Something like this, you know. Fill in the blanks. <laughs> yeah. You've heard it before. Um, so this complaint sort of implies that there's this, like, single, easy-to-understand, simple, quick process to migrate to the United States that occurs completely within a vacuum, away from any sort of political violence or economic hardship that was most likely caused by the U.S. foreign policy. See the section that Bones just went over, um, you know, like, for example, the war on drugs, the invasion of Latin American countries, interference in their democracies, support of political coups, exploitative work environments, multinational corporations like the Chiquita brands, etc. So, of course, this single, simple, easy-to-understand process does not exist. 
According to a recent U.S. Department of State visas bulletin, folks who want to come to the United States should be prepared to wait for a long fucking time, as the process can take up to or even more than 20 years. Yeah, I, I got 20 <laughs> years. I can wait 20 years. Sure, why Tw- not? 20 years. God. <sighs> And the current immigration law separates people who are attempting to, quote-unquote, legally migrate to the U.S. into many different categories, each with different caps on how many folks are admitted. The whole process is rationalized. In addition to this, there's also a rule that no country can exceed 7% of the total people immigrating to the U.S. in a given year. And I should make a point here. Um, when we were doing our homework for this episode, um, I left out a lot. <laughs> I left out a ton. They're getting um, to the United States the right way. Um, and I used air quotes when I did that. And y'all definitely saw that because <laughs> yeah. this is a podcast. Um, it's it's just so daunting. It's so massive. Um, and... This episode does not do it justice, but just to, just to even wrap our head around it, I had to just trim it down to the absolute bare bones. Um, and uh, when you read through this shit, I mean, it's just clear. It's just like fuck these rules, <laughs> fuck the people who wrote them. This is insanity. It's almost this like is... they don't want people to come here. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like they're fucking racist. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, I mean, also, like, on top of all of these rules, we also must consider that there are also different employment-based preferences, um, preferential categories given to certain sort of folks. So the first preference, um, EB1s, a.k.a. the Einstein visa, goes to people deemed to have extraordinary ability in various fields. Didn't Melania Trump get that visa? <laughs> yeah. I think she did. Anyway, make of, make of that what you will. Yeah. Um, there also are categories for people with advanced degrees, professionals, and skilled workers, and another for investors willing to put up a million dollars or more to underwrite a new business. Uh, yes, that's right. You can literally buy your way into the United States, in case you didn't think you could. Yet again, <laughs> I mean, this proves how easily capital flows across borders while human migration is scrutinized and restricted. So this all adds up to the fact that 20 years is a hell of a long time to put someone's life on hold. Meanwhile, the United States still displays the same kind of insane hubris that it takes to literally bomb and bribe the world into submission, while at the same time clutching pearls over people who have fled the devastation that U.S. imperialism has caused for generations. Immigrants are not criminals for wanting a better life for themselves and their families. Full stop. The U.S., on the other hand, for exporting war and labor abuses across the global south, has a lot to answer for. And we should also make a couple of additional points before switching over to the third point on border imperialism. And the first is just that massive quantities of folks at the southern border are here to rightfully request asylum. But CBP isn't letting them cross into American territory in order to do so. So many of them, once turned away, cross over at non-official spaces and are then picked up and fed into the system as if they weren't attempting to request asylum. So just put yourself in that situation. Try to, I mean, it's impossible, but try to put yourself in that situation for a second. You, you've crossed thousands of miles with your kids. You're, you know, fleeing Honduras. You're fleeing a right-wing coup there. You make it to the border. You're at an official port of entry. Trying to do it the right <laughs> way, again. You want to say that you need to claim asylum, 
and CBP says you can't cross this bridge. So you cross somewhere else, then they pick you up, and now you're in the system. It's it's disgusting. Yeah. Um, and just lastly, I just wanted to make sure that we mentioned that um, private prisons were first used for the detainment of immigrants, and that ICE pays out millions of contracts to private companies. I mean, we couldn't list them all. I mean, everything you own was made by these companies. Um, tech companies, colleges, consulting firms, research institutes, etc. Um, the criminalization of migrants is a business. Um, so in our third section, we're going to talk about the racialization of migrants. Um, so the Latinx population has grown rapidly over the last several decades, uh, due in part to uh, immigration from Mexico and Central America. Latinx folks now constitute about 16.3% of the population uh, as of 2010. Uh, and that makes it the largest minority group in the United States. Uh, Latin American migration to the United States is nothing new, of course, except for a short gap during the Great Depression. Mexicans have been migrating to the United States uh, in, since early in the 20th century, for example. Uh, after 1945, Mexicans were joined by immigrants from places like Puerto Rico, Cuba, and the Dominican Repu uh, Republic, uh, followed in the 1980s by Central Americans and South Americans. Um, apart from Mexicans the successive waves of Latin Americans came in response to political and economic interventions within the region by, you guessed it, the United States, uh, beginning with programs like Operation Bootstrap in Puerto Rico, uh, continuing with Cold War operations in Cuba and the Dominican Republic, and the Contra War in Central America. Uh, before 1965, it was relatively easy for Latin Americans to enter in the United States uh, legally, quote-unquote. In, earlier in the podcast, we talked about caps on numbers of migrants, and that just didn't exist back then. <laughs> uh, just one example would be the, uh, just to kind of put this all into context, would be the Bracero program uh, that in its 22-year his history brought nearly 5 million Mexican workers into the United States on temporary work visas. Uh, during the 50s and 60s, the total number of documented Mexican immigrants alone fluctuated around half a million persons per year. At the end of 1964, however, uh, the U.S. T unilaterally terminated the Bracero program over Mexican protests, and in 1965, Congress passed amendments to the Immigration and Nationali uh, Nationality Act uh, that placed uh, the first ever cap on the number of immigrants allowed into the U.S. Uh, to just 20,000 immigrant uh, visas per country, even though quote, legal, unquote, methods of coming to the U.S. became extremely restricted, uh, the demand for Mexican workers did not change, uh, and Mexico, uh, Mexicans continued to flow to the jobs they had traditionally held. Uh, so inevitably, this meant a rise in undocumented immigration. Uh, as their ranks had grown, uh, Latinx people have uh, been subjected to, near, to a steady drumbeat of racialization both in heated political rhetoric and in the media, and these have been associated with hard-right shifts in immigration and border policy. The current immigration climate has come to affect Latinos in the same way that the criminal justice system has disproportionately affected African Americans, broadening the class war as the white supremacist state continues to demonize while simultaneously exploiting immigrants for economic gain. This racialization of migrants is nothing new, but it's come into the spotlight since Trump's 2016 coup. From the labeling of undocumented immigrants as rapists 
to the trotting out of families of victims who were murdered by undocumented folks, insinuating that this is somehow representative of all undocumented communities, which it isn't, to fear-mongering about drugs coming over the border, to building a giant wall with money that they swore up and down we didn't have, to incredibly racist social media accounts of ICE officers that were recently exposed by immigrant rights activists, it's clear that nationalist paranoia has been ratcheted up to levels that a lot of us have never seen before. And how the fuck adults still fall for their government pointing at desperate and marginalized communities and saying, those people are your enemies, and it working will never cease to amaze me. It makes no sense. Struggling immigrant families trying to make better lives for themselves and their families as U.S. Imperium continues to affect the world like a cancer are not the enemy. The real enemy is in the White House. The real enemy is in Congress. The real enemy is ICE. The real enemy is this shambling death machine that thinks that locking children in dog kennels will somehow protect us. Mao Zedong once said, quote, The most important problem does not lie in understanding the laws of the objective world and thus being able to explain it, but in applying the knowledge of these laws actively to change the world. Only through clear-eyed understanding of what exactly organizations like ICE are and how they are empowered by a predatory capitalist system and how they use racially coded terror tactics to divide and oppress the working class can we hope to defeat them. Only by having a solid understanding of how ICE is the latest incarnation of the United States' long, sad history of terrorizing immigrant communities and how it gets the power and resources to do such a thing can we build and use appropriate tactics to put an end to their dream of Fortress America once and for all? Let's move on to the fourth part of border imperialism, which is the disempowerment of labor. So as we mentioned above, displacements are also triggered through economic warfare, taking the form of trade deals and structural adjustment politics. NAFTA, a 1994 trade deal, for instance, uh, struck between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada directly led to over 1 million Mexican corn farmers losing their farms and 15 million workers being plunged into poverty since the financial interest of big agricultural firms in America came to supersede the well-being of Mexican workers. Structural adjustment contracts, as mentioned earlier, are signed when periphery nations seek loans from global financial institutions such as the IMF and the World Bank. The issuance of these loans come with requirements to sell off public goods, to deregulate, institute austerity measures, and open themselves up to foreign capital investment. Throughout Central and South America, we've seen populations displaced from rural areas as this land is bought up by foreign investment and forced either out of the country or into urban areas with increasingly precarious conditions for workers. Early August this year, ICE detained 700 immigrants in their largest raid in decades from seven coke chicken plants in Mississippi. These plants had just been ordered to pay out nearly $4 million in damages for sexual and other forms of discrimination against Hispanic employees. And then ICE shows up. Coincidence? Mm. And hundreds of workers have their lives ruined. The bosses who hired them, not so much. To be sure, we aren't advocating stiffer punishments for those who hire undocumented workers. We aren't interested in <clears throat> you know, like making it harder for undocumented folks to find work. But when you look at how the state arrests and charges undocumented immigrants compared to the businesses that hire them, the point is clear. The businesses don't have to worry. The 
the undocumented workers do have to work. The risk is pushed downward. Yeah, yeah. It, it's on the workers. And, and this system makes and sustains a disenfranchised and disempowered immigrant workforce. If you get out of line, you don't have any recourse. If your boss steals your wages from you, you don't have any recourse. If your boss harasses or assaults you, you don't have any recourse. And if you try to seek recourse, then the boss calls ICE. Undocumented immigrants can't apply for Medicaid, Medicare, food stamps, or TAMP funding. That's temporary assistance for needy families. It's what welfare was turned into under the Clinton administration to help with any of their financial woes. They can't draw Social Security when they're elderly, even though they pay billions into it annually. Because let's remember, immigrants do pay taxes, whether they are documented or undocumented. Yeah, they pay more. There's, there's like so many fucking myths. Like you always like forget shit you have to like <laughs> say like, oh, by the way, this also isn't true. <laughs> but, but yeah, so immigrants pay far more in taxes than they take out in social services. They can't receive uh, like a whole host of loans to help go to school. They can't rely on police for help. They can't get out of line at work. They are systematically relegated to a tool of capital and treated like a fucking machine instead of like our brothers and sisters and our neighbors. And this is how borders function geopolitically. Borders are for workers. They are not for capital. Say it louder for people no. in the back. Borders are for workers. They are not for capital. Border imperialism makes criminalized, racialized, disempowered workers out of displaced peoples and feeds them into a system of globalized neoliberal capitalism. Okay, so just a, a few points in addition to all of this uh, before closing out. Um, we wanted to make clear that first, in discussing border imperialism, we've been talking essentially about America and its neighbors um, and this is not to imply that the U.S. is the only metropole vamping off the periphery, but to give a catalog of all the ways capital has displaced, criminalized, racialized, and exploited indigenous workers, uh, it would take a fucking encyclopedia, you know. And, and our point was simply to get across the concept and to lend some content to listeners who may be curious as to, like, why are leftists talking about abolishing borders in the first place? Exactly. So, so we hope that this is a good jumping-off point and that you all might be able to kind of take that and run with it and, and continue having these discussions in your, in your workplaces, in your homes, and, and schools, and, and your communities. And links in the description if you need help. Yep. Um, the second point is that while this discussion focused exclusively on the concept of border imperialism— we do hope that it also serves as sort of like a general example of how leftists of various stripes critically reflect on society as contrasted with their bourgeois counterparts. So we opposed the abstract notions of like national sovereignty and outright state propaganda lines about borders uh, to an analysis centered around how borders actually function geopolitically. What do they do? How are they historically constituted? And how are they related to the flow and accumulation of capital? In general, leftists oppose uh, like abstract bourgeois political notions um, to functional and historical understandings. And lastly, while we maintain that the abolishment of borders is an ultimate aim of leftist, broadly speaking, we want to make sure to point out that this is not incompatible with certain forms of decolonial nationalism as well. When looking at certain black nationalist and indigenous nationalist movements, the idea is that before we can get to a space where the abolishment of borders is a live option, we have to move past colonialism and imperialism. 
And uh, to that end, these movements seek nationhood for external and internal colonized peoples in order that they may use control over their own states, over their own resources, uh, to come to the international table as equals in the movement towards a classless, stateless, moneyless, and borderless world that we're all fighting for. But you can't do that if you are treated, like you said earlier, Alfred, um, as a, a tool in a capitalist society without any sort of recourse, without any sort of agency. Nationalism can give you the control you need to come as like an equal partner yes. to the world stage. Yes, so. um, but uh, you know, within the greater context of, right. of what we just spent the last hour or so talking about. Um, so we don't aim to discuss these movements in this particular episode, uh, but we did want to affirm that not all forms of nap- nationalism are incompatible uh, with the critique of border imperialism that we introduced uh, earlier in the podcast. Uh, so we here at Charleston DSA hope this discussion has been helpful, and we will continue to keep y'all in the loop on ICE activities here in the Low Country. Uh, stay tuned uh, for part three in our ICE series coming out soon. And remember, our greatest weapon is solidarity. We have to look out for each other. I'm CJ Bones. I'm Alfred Peeler. Y'all be good.
street sign here. 